hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Dana Saylor's Creativity Retreat. Okay, listen up. Anyone who needs a swift kick in the creativity. What blissful state of making did you enjoy as a kid? You may have lost that along with Saturday morning cartoons, but it's within your grasp to reclaim your artist self. You can thrive with community support and a dedicated, disciplined practice. Join working artists and creative coaches in historic East Aurora, New York for Dana Saylor's Inclusive Creativity Retreat. Stay at the Roycroft Inn with shared meals, inspirational talks, yoga, and one-on-one coaching. And leave with a solid plan to take your artistic life to the next level. Go to danasaylor.com retreat to apply or to sponsor a creative that you care about. Again, that's Dana Saylor, D-A-N-A-S-A-Y-L-O-R dot com slash retreat. And by The Great Courses Plus. So I know not everybody has been drawing their entire lives. I know that not everybody probably had to take home notes from their teachers because they were doodling in class instead of paying attention. I know that. Still, my love of drawing didn't stop when I finished school. And I'm sure that either it's the same way for you, or you've always wanted to learn how to draw and just never pursued it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about The Great Courses Plus, a wonderful streaming service where you can learn about anything that interests you from leading professors and experts on topics like art, literature, history, science, photography, and more. With unlimited access to over 10,000 fascinating lectures that you can watch anywhere or listen along, podcast style, with the Great Courses Plus app. One particular course that I've been enjoying is How to Draw. It offers great, easy, step-by-step tutorials on drawing shapes, composition, proportions for both novices and experienced artists who just doodle on everything anyway. And for a limited time, Lonely Palette listeners will receive a full free month of unlimited access to their entire library. So to get started, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lonely. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lonely and start your free month today. So how would you describe this Oh gosh. Um, I would say, honestly, I would say to somebody, have you seen the Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan? It's that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's a man who's wearing a bowler hat in a black suit. Looks like a very official kind of businessman. And he has a green apple on leaves in front of his face. So that's hiding who he is. But you can just sort of see a little bit of his eyes. So he can see around the apple. And he can see you, but you can't see what he looks like. His shirt is perfectly pressed, and he looks realistic. But that, that damn apple's rolling in front of his head. I feel bad for him. So does it surprise you that there's an apple in front of his face? Yes, because that seems like a very silly thing, to put an apple on a painting. Or like paint an apple on somebody's face. It's the worst disguise of all time. It almost feels like... Uh, that Monty Python, How Not to Be Seen, where the guy's <laughs> hiding behind a bush, but then the voiceover says, stand up, please, and he stands up, and then they blow him up. <laughs> like, mostly it makes me want to know more. It makes me want to imagine the story of this man's life and who he might be. He looks like a, like a Gestapo guy. I don't know, I have this image from a movie of someone from the Gestapo being very 
um, or like an FBI agent where you're very tucked in, your coat is perfect, you have a white shirt, a red tie, uh, you're clean shaven, your hat fits perfectly, so you're, you're very much in a uniform. He looks like a hitman with an apple in front of his face. <laughs> He's the fruit mafia. <laughs> the produce police, everybody, <laughs> stand back. You just want to swipe away the apple. Like, it's, it's one of those, like, like, it's impossible to see the face. And, like, it, there's just enough of a hint with the eye that makes it even more maddening. While the rest of the picture is realistic, the, the apple is almost a fake green color and in perfect sphere. The color of it kind of makes it sit even more in front of the face, but it's mostly solid green, and it just it is so present. It is very deliberate. But every other signifier in here is matted, muted, and neutral. You have a gray sky, a slightly bluer gray sea, a gray suit, a gray bowler hat, gray hair at the temples, and a non-flashy tie. There is nothing signifying this man in this piece. Like, there's, the face is the only thing that could. It's like the apple is more of an apple than the man is a man. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 32, Renee Magritte's The Son of Man, from 1964. It all started when I was on a road trip with my husband. And I went off on a righteous diatribe about how much I hate the brake lights on Jeeps these days. It's like there are little X's over their eyes, I said. They might as well have a tongue sticking out the rear bumper and little bubbles popping over the roof rack. A drunk car, I concluded, is just a terrible design choice. And my husband looked at me, delighted that he could still find out something new about me after 10 years. Do you see faces in everything, he asked. And I thought back to all the cars that I liked or disliked based on their expressions, all the streetlights that felt like eyes peering into my bedroom windows, all the outlets that I'd violated with plugs. And it seemed so obvious that I never even stopped to question my brain. Of course I see faces everywhere. Doesn't everyone? So as it turns out, no. When I googled seeing faces everywhere, the first hit was an article that diagnosed me simply as neurotic, which I admit was kind of unsatisfying. So a deeper Google pointed me towards pareidolia, the phenomenon where the brain responds to an image by creating patterns where none objectively exist. It's the same psychic condition that makes you see the man in the moon or the Virgin Mary in a tortilla or a drunk octopus on a bathroom coat hook. And the funny thing is, the internet seems to think that this is an ailment, using language like suffering from it or here's what's wrong with you, when honestly, there's nothing wrong with me. I think it's great. 
it gives the world an added layer of personality. And though it's not as universal as I originally assumed, it's actually still pretty common. And artists in particular are lousy with it. And I was reminded of my whimsical little affliction when I came face to face, quote unquote, with this painting. This famous, important, iconic painting by the mid-20th century surrealist René Magritte and felt inescapably agitated. Here I am, searching in vain for a face where I would be perfectly within my rights to expect one, only to find myself utterly and rudely, I feel, cock-blocked by an apple. A smooth, green, luscious apple that's not actually connected to anything. It's not growing out of the hat. It's not hanging down from a tree. It's just there, hovering in space. And its job is not to be appetizing, but to obscure his face, like the weirdly placed lamp that we're supposed to pretend isn't blocking a pregnant actress's belly. And as such, we have permission to laugh at the absurdity of it. It is, in fact, as ridiculous as it seems. Like, dude, we see you. And the absurdity of this apple only further reinforces the seriousness with which we imagine this man conducting himself, so neatly trimmed and well-pressed, like a 1960s G-man, just standing completely on his own. The incongruity between the two is comedy 101, like pieing a wealthy dowager in the face. And yet, the suspended apple isn't just a one-off joke. Far from it, actually. Because throughout his career, Magritte played with the idea of an object obfuscating, and even with this little apple itself, over many, many canvases. It was as if he was trying to pinpoint the exact moment when absurdity become significant. But put a pin in this apple for now. Let's first take a step back and situate ourselves in Brussels in the late 1920s. Who was René Magritte? You might remember him from episode 22, when our entry point into the mid-century neo-dataist Jasper Johns was care of Magritte's pipe. Well, actually, as we'll recall, it was a painting of a pipe, with a written description underneath the pipe that says that it isn't a pipe, and it was titled The Treachery of Images. In other words, the painting is saying, don't trust paintings. Because we expect our art to tell us that the image of the thing is the thing, and not simply pigment on canvas made to look like the thing. This is, of course, obvious. But if you consider that Western art since the Renaissance prided itself on replicating exactness, a quote-unquote window onto the world, it's actually pretty revolutionary. It's like he's saying that once we own up to the fact that art is a question of representation rather than reality, we can abandon reality altogether. And maybe from there, we can probe the most experimental boundaries of how an artist can express subjective human experience, the unique perception of the world that we all share. And no artistic movement up to this point took this to heart more than surrealism. Magritte didn't actually start out as a surrealist. And as we'll discuss in a future episode, 
surrealism itself didn't stay one thing over the course of the century. And the treachery of images wouldn't necessarily even be described as a classically surreal artwork. Magritte actually argued that it was pretty darn real, calling out a pipe for being exactly what it wasn't. But the treachery of images was painted in 1927, when he was 30 years old. And the painting that we're focusing on today, The Son of Man, was painted in 1964, almost 40 years later, and three years before he died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 68. In the intervening years, Magritte firmly planted his flag on the Surrealist hilltop, witnessing and shaping its permutations alongside his fellow friends and artists Salvador Dali, Jean Arp, André Breton, and others. He left Brussels for Paris in 1928 and spent the rest of his career playing with the wit, the visual puns, the evocative dreamscapes, and the bizarre imagery that all tried, in one way or another, to articulate those free associations of our uniquely irrational, emotional unconscious minds, and maybe even to then allow this tender self-exploration to deepen our empathy towards one another. Quote, if you like love, founder André Breton wrote in their manifesto, then you'll love surrealism. And though we haven't explicitly talked about surrealism before, we have talked about its origins. Surrealism germinated from the same art historical apple seeds as late 19th century Expressionism and as late 18th century Romanticism before that. This idea that we process the world not by intellectualizing it, but by experiencing it, by emotionalizing it. And it's okay to sacrifice the rational logic of a picture plane or a naturalistic color palette to get there. Emotions, after all, don't have to make sense. And we talked about this in episode 18. While the 18th century neoclassicists were making sense of the world through clear, organized symmetry and rationalism, their romantic counterparts were wrestling with and succumbing to nature, both Mother Nature and our own subconscious interiors, like we saw in Turner's slave ship. And we can see this struggle even more literally in the works of other romantics like Francisco Goya and Henry Fuseli. Take, for example, Fuseli's The Nightmare from 1781, a sexualized paranormal vision of a nightmare that depicts a woman asleep in a swoon, with an incubus sitting on her chest and a literal mare looking in. Romantic painters wanted to make visible what you could only feel, the weight of a nightmare sitting on your chest, or the bats of anxiety that flap violently around your brain, like we see in Goya's famous etching, The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, from around 1797. Surrealism borrowed Romanticism's literal articulation of the unconscious, making visible what is otherwise only inwardly experienced. Reality is transcended into surreality, both exposing the psychological interiors of the artist and the viewer, and empathically bonding them together. But surrealism also found its roots in Dada. 
We explored Dada in episode 17, and Neo-Dada in episode 22, Bagrit's first appearance with that non-pipe. Dada, if you'll recall, had a particular fondness for taking the everyday and changing its meaning. Take a urinal off the wall and place it in a museum, and suddenly it becomes an art object. You can imagine how much the Surrealists love this idea, this bending of the ordinary into new and surreal shapes. And Magritte in particular possessed an uncanny ability to take something realistic and turn it on its head, to capture the world with that same almost photorealistic precision as we see with that pipe, and bend it towards the surreal. He makes us feel at home only to misdirect us, to make us question our own understanding, like he does with that pipe. He takes the most commonplace objects and, in the words of his contemporary critics, makes them, quote, scream out loud. To wit, an apple on its own is just an apple. An apple blocking someone's face is absurd. So back to this apple. Why the apple motif was so compelling to Magritte is a bit of a mystery. He talked about seeing it appear in his dreams, smooth and unblemished, and wrestled with it, its everydayness, over a series of canvases that can be seen as both playful or profound, depending on your perspective or the time of day. But this green apple itself actually has far less artistic significance than massive pop culture shaping influence. And forgive me while I blow your mind right now. Because in the 1960s, Magritte painted a series of apples, including, incidentally, one with the caption, this is not an apple, a riff on that infamous pipe. And one of these apple paintings was purchased in 1966 by a 24-year-old Paul McCartney, who was then inspired to name the Beatles record company Apple Corp and use that green apple as their logo. And if that's not enough, along comes Steve Jobs, spurred by his hero McCartney's love of this very same apple, and decides that it should name his entire empire. You know, the one that gave birth to that iPhone that I assume, statistically speaking, you're using to listen to this right now. I think even Christians might agree that it's in the running for the most famous apple in history. But despite the parenthetical fame of Magritte's little apple, its job to obscure this man's face, or his face, as Magritte has repeatedly claimed that this painting is a self-portrait, is really the point here. And over the course of all of the canvases that Magritte painted where he experimented with faces and with things blocking them, he came to realize that not all objects obscure equally. One painting in particular, Man in a Bowler Hat, also from 1964, is an almost identical image of the well-groomed man in the bowler hat facing us head-on, but with a bird in front of his face instead of the apple. And despite the similarities, there's clearly a different narrative being told here. You could make the argument that the bird was just flying by, photobombing the canvas, just caught in the snap of the shot. And it makes that apple, then, feel all the more deliberate, all the more inconvenient. Its randomness reinforces the point that it exists solely to block his face from us. And therefore, with it, anything that we could possibly read or relate to 
or identify with. And we are left completely at a loss as to who this man is. It's utterly disconcerting. My pareidolia has already proven that a face can give even an inanimate object a personality, yet put that same object in front of someone's face, and we lose all sense of who they are. Magritte was consumed with the idea of obfuscation throughout his career, and the more you know about him, the less it all feels like a joke. His early painting, The Lovers, from 1928, depicts a man and woman kissing, but with both of their heads fully covered in fabric, again taking us the other way, as this moment of connection becomes one of isolation. And he painted a series of figures with enshrouded faces, which art historians have not indelicately attributed to Magritte's own childhood experience, when, at the age of 14, his mother committed suicide by drowning and was found with her face wrapped up in her wet nightgown. He personally denied the direct connection, but wrote at length about the contrast between what we see and what remains hidden in our human interactions. Quote, it's something that happens constantly, he wrote. Everything we see hides another thing. We always want to see what is hidden by what we see, end quote. In other words, we're always reading one another, trying to make sense of each other's implicit and explicit signals, those hints and allegations, as noted Magritte lover Paul Simon sings. And it's no different than us wanting Magritte's fascination with shrouds to explain his childhood trauma, or, and you psych majors out there will love this, to attribute Magritte's bowler hat, his ever-present sartorial trademark, to the fact that his mother actually was a milliner. To delve into human psychology is to want to make connections where maybe there aren't any, but maybe there are. And the observer is no more certain of where the truth lies than the experiencer. It's an admirable impulse, this desire to completely understand each other, but it doesn't account for the mystery, the mystery of simply being human of trying to understand our own heads, of everything that we don't even know about ourselves. And Magritte is playing with this all the time. We look at the Son of Man, the self-portrait of an artist who presents himself as unknowable, who peers back at us with half an eye as if daring us to try to know him. And yet it's only in this unknowability, this apple-blocked unknowability, that we fully appreciate the distinction between, as Magritte writes, quote, the visible that is present and the visible that is hidden, end quote. It's like he's saying, if you really want to get to the root of me, allow me my mystery. At the end of the day, all you really know for sure about me is that there are parts of me you don't know. And this brings us to one final point, the title. When you Google the Son of Man, you get way more Jesus-related hits than surrealist art. Between the title and, of course, that apple, you have to wonder, how could there not be at least some religious connotation here? 
After all, aren't we all descendants from the original man and an apple-related snafu? Furthermore, Jesus in his earthly form was the Son of Man. It was only in his divine form that he was, of course, the Son of God. And we could easily make the argument here that we're looking at the story of transfiguration told through the absurd eyes of a surrealist. The apple covering his face is like the veil of the material body covering the true substance of holiness beneath it. In other words, the visible that is present and the visible that is hidden. Everything we see hides another thing. And honestly, I'd buy that analysis. It's a profound and delightfully modern twist on something so sacred and archaic. But we need to also consider that it's entirely possible that we're reading too much into it. Surrealism, as you might imagine, has a difficult time standing up to too much rational scrutiny. And even Magritte countered questions about the meaning behind his paintings with the response that, quote, it doesn't mean anything because mystery means nothing either. It is unknowable, end quote. Of course, a response like this is maddening. It's frustrating to really commit to looking, to search for meaning in a painting, and be, essentially, cock-blocked by the artist. But maybe we can choose to see it another way. Maybe this is just Magritte giving us permission to be satisfied with a less surreal interpretation. Because ultimately, I think the reason this painting is so iconic is because it's synonymous with anonymity. If the Thomas Crown Affair taught us anything, it's that the minute you don a bowler hat, you assume a shroud of concealment. This man is no man, and therefore every man, simply just the son of man. And really, putting aside all the religious connotation and forgiving the gendered language, aren't we all just the son of man? And maybe this universal anonymity has its own value because it allows us all our mystery. We all move through the world plainly visible yet containing these unseen depths. And this is something we all share, something that connects us in all of our unique and irrational ways. Even if we all might seem, on the face of it, to be on our own. The exhibition, René Magritte, The Fifth Season, is on view at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art until October 28, 2018. And go if you can, because after this, The Son of Man goes right back into the private collection from which it came. Special thanks to Ryan Stever, Aaron Fleming, Ian Fox at the PRX Podcast Garage, and especially Heather Cox and her son Liam. Heather is the co-founder of a website I've loved for years, Go Fug Yourself, 
who I serendipitously ran into in the gallery, and who was generous enough to be interviewed for the show. Check her out at gofugyourself.com and bookmark that link immediately. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, go to thelonelypalette.com or follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram, where I regularly post bonus images from each episode, at The Lonely Palette, or like us on Facebook. And if you're a fan of the show and looking for a way to tell me so, the best thing you can do is leave a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. And of course, the only thing better than best is to support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a new collective of idea-driven podcasts. Check out the latest episode of another Hub & Spoker, Iconography, where host Charles Gustine dives into the story of the New England icon Squanto in order to separate him from the Thanksgiving narrative and those handprint turkeys that we associate with him. Check it out alongside all the other Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Champs-Élysées Oh, Champs-Élysées